let's, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help. Father, we do praise you that you are the great deliverer. You are the great deliverer. You are the great deliverer of our souls. That's what you do. You rescue. You deliver. You snatch us from the pit. You protect us from the fiery darts of the evil one. You are a buckler and a shield, a, a fortress and a strong tower. Lord, we praise you. But without you, we would be utterly lost, cast down, ruined, and destroyed. Thank you for Jesus, your son. Thank you for the salvation that's found in him. A rescue not just from the, the brokenness of this world, a rescue from the brokenness even of our own hearts, a rescue from sin and judgment and death. What a great deliverance. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we look into your word this morning and we consider this theme of deliverance, we think about the, the injustices that we see in Esther 4 and we think about the response of your people, we pray that you would help us, comfort us, console us in our own lament and lift our eyes toward heaven in which comes our help. All of our help, O oh Lord, comes from you. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, we'll be considering with God's help uh, this entire chapter, verses 1 to 17. And if you're joining us this morning online for the first time, or if you're joining us here this morning uh, for the first time, and, and this is the first sermon that you've heard in this series on Esther, let me tell you what, what we've covered so far by way of review. So Esther chapter 1 introduces us to a king. He's the king of the, the Medo-Persian Empire. It's the empire that's replaced Babylon. And that's important because it was the Babylonian Empire that had conquered Israel, that had destroyed Jerusalem, and had taken all of the Jews into exile in that empire, into Babylon. So we're in a period of Israel's history where they are scattered through the Babylonian Empire. And we're introduced to a king, uh, sometimes called Xerxes, also named Ahasuerus. He's the king of this empire. He's extraordinarily wealthy. Um, he, it's the third year of his reign, and he's having a six-month-long party to celebrate his kingdom. And at the end of that six-month-long party, he has a week committed to drinking. And in the midst of that drunkenness, he sends for his queen, Vashti, who's, a, who's reportedly in the Bible a beautiful woman. And he calls Vashti to come and, and basically appear before all of his buddies so they could look at her. And we thought about, in chapter 1, the problems that, that that really reveals to us of objectifying women, of reducing women to objects to satisfy the, the lustful desires of men. And, and you recall, Vashti refused to come, and so the king, at the advice of one of his council members, decided to pass a law that would affect the entire empire, an empire that ranged from Ethiopia to India. 
127 provinces, and that law required women basically to be subject to their husbands, right? Then we come to chapter 2. It's four years later. Ahasuerus, the historians tell us, have gone out to war with Rome. He's come back having lost that war, and, and he's sulking a bit. And in chapter 2, he remembers four years later, that's right, I don't have a queen. And now he's surrounded by seven young men, his servants, and these young men said, we got an idea, why don't you have a beauty contest? Take up all the young, beautiful virgins in the kingdom, have them sent to you into your harem, and then you choose which one you want. And so in chapter 2, women are still being objectified. Women are still being treated as objects for the satisfaction of men's lust. This man is, is taking women from all over the empire and one by one um, considering them, let's call it, until he comes to Esther. He sees Esther, and the Bible tells us he falls in love with Esther. Now Esther, that's her her name in this book, her Hebrew name is Hadassah. She's Jewish. She's an orphan. She lost her parents when she was very young. And she's been raised by her cousin, Mordecai. And apparently she's a, a, a wonderful young woman, and Mordecai has been a wonderful cousin. He's raised her just as if she was his own daughter. Now she gets taken. And at this point, I wish Mordecai was Liam Neeson with a very special set of skills. He'll go get his cousin back. She gets taken, gets put into the harem, and Mordecai tells her, don't, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. So she's inside of the palace, in the harem, passing as Babylonian. <laughs> Ahasuerus sees her, falls in love with her, makes her queen. And then we come to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we meet another character by the name of Haman. He kind of comes out of nowhere. And what we're told pretty quickly is that he rises to be number two in the kingdom, that his throne is lifted up above all the other counselors, all the other officials in the kingdom. He's number two only to the king. And Haman is an Agagite. He's an Amalekite. The Amalekites are the ancient enemies of Israel. So here you have Mordecai on the one hand, who's a Benjaminite, who is a descendant of Kish, who is the father of the first king in Israel, Saul. So Saul and Agag were enemies. And Saul defeated Agag and put Agag to death. And these two descendants now, both of them conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, are, are sort of faced with each other. The king passes a law, says everybody needs to bow to Haman. Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. Haman gets furious, and Haman hatches a plot. It's a plot to destroy not just Haman, but all the Jews. He gets the king to pass another law, to issue another edict with his royal stamp that gets circulated through the 127 provinces that on a certain day that all the other peoples in the land are to rise up and put to death all the Jews in the empire. That's where we are when we come to chapter 4. We're in this land of significant injustice against women, and of significant injustice against Jews. You see, racism and sexism are twins, beloved. They grow up in the same family of animosity and partiality and hatred. 
And that's where we are when we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we're going to begin to see Israel's response, the response of the Jews to what has become really a, a situation of systemic injustice, of the use of the law at the highest level to be enforced at the lowest level in a way that destroys people based upon their religion and ethnicity, based upon the fact that they are Jews. The question that hangs over chapter 4 for me this morning is how do we respond to widespread, devastating, significant injustice when we have not heard from God? How do we respond to this kind of injustice when God appears to be silent? Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept it. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. 
Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So how do we respond to large-scale systemic injustice, especially when it seems like God is silent? Let me give you three things from this text. This will be our outline. Number one, we must express grief in a healthy way. We must express grief in a healthy way. That's verses one to four. Number two, we must use God's grace to help others. Must use the grace that we've gotten from God to help others facing injustice, verses 5 to 11. And number three, we must show grit in the face of danger. We must show grit in the face of danger. Express grief, use grace, show grit. This is what we see in Esther 4. Look there in verses 1 to 4. Last week I asked the question, how should we feel about these things, about injustices? Some of you said that that was a part of the sermon that that spoke to you most. Verse 1 really brings us back to that question of feeling. How should we feel when we learn about or witness or suffer injustice based upon sex or gender, based upon race or nationality, based upon religion, based upon anything? How, how should we be responding to systemic injustice, particularly as members of a marginalized ethnic or religious group like the Jews in Esther's day? But look at me in verses 1 and 2. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Everything in these two verses screams grief. And I want to suggest to you that what we learn in verses 1 to 4 is a healthy way of expressing grief in the midst of injustice. Four things here. Number one, we should, grief was meant to be expressed publicly. Should express our grief publicly. Mordecai tore his clothes. It's a, it's a, a symbol in the Bible of a, of a torn, a rent heart, of, of agonizing grief that, that tears off all normalcy. Some of us are stuck right there because we paid too much for our clothes. We ain't tearing up nothing. We can't grieve like that, Pastor. The Mordecai went on and put, he put on sackcloth and ashes. Again, sort of traditional symbols of mourning and grief and weeping in ancient Israel. Listen, beloved, even our clothing should express our lament. That's why we traditionally wear black to funerals, for example. The clothing expresses the sorrow. See, sackcloth and ashes are the biblical wardrobe for someone in serious sorrow. Not Dooney and Burke, not Dana, Donna Karen or Burberry, not New York and Company or Cole Hall, not even Levi's or Nike. Sackcloth and ashes. We need rough clothes for rough times, boy. Notice what he does. Mordecai went out into the city. Since the injustice was public, notice, Mordecai made his grief public. 
He wasn't worried about decorum. He wasn't worried about protocol, nor did he fall into the trap of isolating himself in his grief. He wasn't worried about making society comfortable while he was in pain, while his people was in pain. He didn't deal with his grief quietly and privately. He went out into the city, the text says, with a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai made his grief a public thing and the main thing in his reaction to injustice. Sometimes in the face of systemic injustice, systemic racism, systemic sexism, any of the isms, the first and most important thing is to, to make our sorrow known. Our grief, no, doesn't get any more public than what Mordecai is doing here. Healthy response to grief and healthy expression of grief is to, is to make it known. Here's the second thing. That grief was also expressed in community. Notice what happens in verse 3. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Grieving became a community response, a national response, a response of this people. It really became a, a covenant response. It's just as we promise in our covenant here at ARC, we will rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, helping to carry each other's burdens. If you're a member of this church, you've made that promise. So we are then covenanting together as a community to feel together and to express that feeling together. And, 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 and that should include feelings of sorrow or grief or pain at the injustices that we see in the world or the injustices that we may suffer as a church. What would it look like for all people, especially all God's people, to grieve together the injustices that impact groups among us? To, to grieve together the injustices that women face in society. To grieve together the whole church, the injustices that immigrant communities suffer in this country. To, to grieve together when we learn of persecuted Christians around the world or other religious groups that are persecuted, Muslims and Jews and Hindus. What, what, would it, what would it be for us to see that, to recognize that as an injustice, to sometimes even be able to trace that back to government action and grieve, lament together? You see, large-scale grief can be so heavy it requires an entire people to help carry it. Grief was expressed in community. It was healthy. Number three, grief was expressed with spiritual tools. Their grief was expressed with spiritual tools. The Jews, the Jews dealt with their grief by using certain spiritual practices that I think biblically are particularly tailored for the expression of sorrow. Verse three, mentions, verse 3 mentions four practices. Number one, fasting. Number two, weeping. Rain is not dressed. Number three, she just ordered IHOP. And number four, laying down. Did you ask her what, what she doing? Just it. I now mean, think about this. Kennedy says she's getting. Earlier in, in their in history, history you were Please meet your mic. Israel had certain ways of dealing with injustice committed against them. 
They had armies, for example. They were mighty in battle when, when God was with them. But now Israel is a completely conquered people. They have no country of their own. They have no walled cities. They have no army. They have no horses and no chariots. They have no king. They had no means of defending themselves besides God, calling on God. Therefore, the weapons of their warfare were not carnal, but spiritual. They had to be spiritual. And beloved, our New Testament tells us the same thing, doesn't it? As Christians, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual. And so Israel now employs these spiritual practices in the text. Notice, first of all, fasting. They're intentionally avoiding eating and drinking. Why? Because isn't it amazing that when we deny our bodies sort of creature comforts, we, we begin to acquire a sharper spiritual awareness. They are, they are sort of cutting themselves off from all the comforts of life, eating and drinking, that they might focus themselves on God. There's a time for feasting, beloved, but that time is not when the government says, we're going to kill all y'all. Then there's weeping. We don't think of weeping as a spiritual practice, do we? We tend to think of it primarily or, or almost entirely as an emotional response. And we tend to think of weeping as, as weakness, right? So we, so we have phrases for it like breaking down, crying. Or, or we try to respond to it by getting control. We don't want to lose control and weep. And it's because we are, we are sort of low-key thinking of weeping as weakness, but that's why a lot of people stuff their emotions down. And why in stuffing their emotions down, they do more damage to themselves than if they were to let it out. There's more room out than in, beloved. So holding things in like this when we're facing suffering and injustice is not control. It's an illusion of control that really destroys us on the inside. Sometimes, beloved, we need to have a good cry. Sometimes we need to have a good cry. We need to let ourselves feel and let ourselves weep so that we can go on in a healthy way. I worry about a version of the Christian faith that only knows how to celebrate and needs no room for mourning. That's a spiritually and emotionally and psychologically bankrupt and unhealthy religion. Jesus wept. That's the first Bible verse many of you learn. Jesus wept. And if our Lord wept, we should weep too in the face of injustice like this. Don't, don't run from weeping, beloved. Weeping is good for us. Weeping is also associated with wisdom. Let me give you a text here. If you, if you want to, you can turn there with me or just keep your finger in Esther 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 2 to 4. The, the writer there says this. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Now that, that, flips it, that flips our assumptions on his head, don't it? Because we think the best place to be is where the party's at. But the writer of Ecclesiastes, the wisest man in the history of the world, Solomon says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, 
for this is the, the end of all mankind, and the living will lay at the heart. In other words, he's saying everybody's going to die, and if you're still alive, you need to think about that. And in thinking about that, you need to go to the house of mourning so that you have wisdom that comes from knowing that life is short. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or pardoning. Oh, beloved, weeping produces wisdom. And weeping is the healthy way to express grief in the face of injustice. Here's the next thing. Notice there, lament. So slightly different from weeping. They often go together, but they're not quite exactly the same thing. And many observers of the American church, the American evangelical church in particular, have pointed out that the church has abandoned the practice of lament, has forgotten the language of lament. Well, what is lament? I like Pastor Tim's definition. Here's another one from my brother, Mark Frogo. He defines lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust in God. A prayer in pain that leads to trust in God. Lament is the Bible's language for pouring out our complaint to God, pouring out our grievances to God, pouring out our sorrow to God, and pouring it out to God in a way that ultimately brings us back to God. Lament is how we praise God through the sorrow. Lament is how we give our hallelujah anyhow. Lament is how we see through our suffering to see up to our sovereign. Lament is saying to God, God, what are you doing? God, where are you at? Can't you see we're in danger? Can't you see that we are hurting? But saying these things in a way that then actually pulls us to God rather than reject God. Sometimes people will say, you're not supposed to question God. I don't really know where people got that from except that maybe they had a pastor who was afraid of their questions. Because when you read the Bible, people questioning God all the time. Prophets and psalmists and all kinds of folks. One third of the Psalms is lament. A full 50 of the Psalms, of the 150 Psalms, are Psalms of lament of Israelites, David and others crying out to God, how long, where you at? You see us, what you're doing. Our enemies are crushing us. They are surrounding us. They are, they are trampling on us. Oh, God. Nevertheless, we trust you. That's lament. Consider, for example, Psalm 137. Again, you can turn that with me if you want. The 137th Psalm starts this way. And I love it because it's very appropriate to Esther and the exile. Verse 1 says this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So this is a psalm that's, that's considering the exile and remembering how Babylon had conquered Jerusalem. They're now sitting next to the waters of Babylon, remembering what was in Jerusalem. There they sat down and wept. Verse 2, on the willows there, we hung up our lyres. A lyre is a musical instrument, kind of a, a happy kind of instrument. They, they hung them up. We're not singing joyful songs no more. Verse 3, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, 
Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Israel is like, no, no, no. All we singing from here on out is the blues. We're not singing you no songs to entertain you. We're not singing you no songs to make you happy. We're not going to sort of reduce ourselves to being court jesters to, to make you laugh, juggle for you, sing for you, dance a little jig for you. No, 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 no. We're hanging up our instruments now. We're in exile. All the songs we know are blues, are laments. And look with me in verses 7 and 8. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. You see how they turn back to God? There's going to be a day of reckoning. That's an example of lament. Pouring out our pain in a way that leads us to God in faith. And beloved, the church desperately needs to recover this biblical language for addressing sorrow. And even, number four, we need to recover the practice of laying down prostrate before God. You see that some lay down in sackcloth and ashes. When we read the Old Testament, we see scenes of great suffering. This is often what we see God's people do, simply collapse on the ground or sit on the ground in their mourning clothes and prostrate themselves before God. That lying down communicates two things, their complete helplessness and their complete dependence or need for God. And it's amazing to me, beloved, but sometimes we need to do physical things to express our grief. Uh, we need to stop pretending we're strong and collapse. Uh, we sometimes need to hug ourselves and rock and moan. There's therapy in those simple physical actions. And we see God's people doing it all the time as they express their sorrow and express their grief. I don't know if you've ever had this experience of, of worshiping God in a public service like we have done today, and, and uh, the congregation seems to be singing great praises, seem to be lifted up, and you look and you just see an older saint who just seems to be rocking, moaning, having their own experience with God. And that's what's happening with Israel. The rest of Babylon is going on about its business. At the end of chapter 3, the king and Haman sit down to have a beer. But, but here now, Israel is laying on its face in the dust, in sackcloth and ashes, expressing their grief. Which brings me to the last thing I want to say about grief. It is healthy to express grief as an act of resistance. Notice now what happens in verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. That last phrase, but he would not accept them. Esther didn't yet know what was going on. All she knew was that her uncle was at the city gate um, morning and crying out loud. And, and she's like, I don't know what's happening, but he can't be in the king's palace dressed that way. Send him some clothes and calm him down. But Mordecai's like, no, 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 no. 
if you're going to kill me and my people, then you're going to see me in my grief. Mordecai is like, I'm not going to put a pretty face on an ugly massacre. He's like, no, sir, you're going to have to look at me in all of my humanity in weeping and lamenting and wailing if you're going to kill my people. This is grief as resistance. Remember again where this is going on. He's at the the, the king's gate in the city. And remember what the king's gate was or the city gate was in an ancient city. It's where the business of the city was taken care of. It's where the elders met. It's where the elders would hear legal cases and judge in matters of dispute. In other words, he's at City Hall. He's at the White House. He's at the King's Gate. He's at the place that symbolizes the king's authority. And he's taking his protest in sackcloth and ashes, in weeping and crying out bitterly. He's taking his protest right up to the King's Gate. And you get the sense in verse 2 when it says that he went up to the gate, but he didn't go into the court, that he would have if he could have. Mordecai is having a sit-in. Mordecai is on a hunger fast. Mordecai has taken his grief and allowed his grief to be the engine, the fuel for expressing resistance to this injustice that is about to take place in the entire land. Sometimes the healthiest thing to do with our grief is to put it into action in the cause of justice. Don't take it home and hide it in your closet. Take it downtown and show it to the powers that be. Mordecai is taking his grief public. He is taking his grief corporate out with the rest of the community. He is expressing his grief in spiritual practices, and he is expressing his grief as an act of resistance. And so that raises questions for us. How do we deal with our grief? Do we use spiritual exercises to address and express our grief? When was the last time we expressed lament to God, apart from this morning's service? Either by ourselves or with others. See, is it true of us, too, that we have lost the practice of lament? And have we considered that grief is a better motivator for justice than anger? The first response to systemic injustice is to express our grief. The second response is to use God's grace to help others. That's what we see in verses 5 to 11. As we said a moment ago in verse 4, Esther doesn't quite know what's going on. She just knows her uncle, whom she loves, is out at the city gate weeping and wailing. And she's like, again, he can't be there that way. Let's send him some clothes, get him sort of presentable to be in public, make sure he's safe. Esther is in the palace, but she's not in the loop. She had no idea what was going on. And why was she? I mean, she had a husband king who thought women were good for looking at, but not for talking to and considering. So she's in the palace, but she's out of the loop. And Mordecai has to explain things to her. He refuses the clothing and sends sends Hathach back with the clothing. Uh, And then she sends Hathach back to Mordecai. Um, to to press him, to say, what's what's going on? What's the cause for all of this commotion? And so Hathach and Mordecai in verses 6 to 8 have a conversation. So 
Mordecai tells him everything that Haman has done to him, everything that's happened between him and Haman. Mordecai explains that uh, how much Haman has paid to Ahasuerus to, to sort of carry out this plot. See, Mordecai, again, is that guy who's got his ear to the ground. He knows what's happening in the palace. He knows what's happening politically around him. He's, a, in that sense, a son of Issachar. Knows the times and what to do. And so he explains to Hathach, this is what went down. Haman has paid this much money. And Mordecai got receipts. Mordecai, like, here's the bill. Here's the law. Here's the law that the king has signed into existence for the Jews to be exterminated throughout the empire. I tell you what you do, Hathach. You go back and you tell uh, my, my daughter, my cousin, my sister, Esther, what's going on. And Hathach does that. But now notice Esther's response in verses 10 and 11. Esther then replies this way. She spoke to Hathach, commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. See, at this point, Esther, very understandably, is thinking about her own survival. But at this point, she's not yet connected God's grace to her with her people's survival. She's thinking like an individual, not like an Israelite. She's thinking like a person, not as a member of the covenant community. She's begun to think that her existence is just for her and not also for her people. She's in danger of misusing God's grace in a selfish way. Why do I say that? Well, consider the evidences of God's grace in Esther's life. By God's grace and providence, Esther was beautiful. She got that from God, not from herself. By God's grace and providence, Esther was raised by her loving cousin, Mordecai. God placed her in that family. She didn't place herself there. By God's grace and providence, the king fell in love with Esther and selected her queen. By God's grace and providence, she has been able to pass as Babylonian rather than Jewish. These are all tokens of God's grace. Now, don't get me wrong. Esther has known hardship. She's known suffering, but she's also really received a lot of grace from God. The question becomes, what should she do with that grace? How should she steward it? Would she become a means of grace for others and their survival? Or would she selfishly only look out for herself? Beloved, there are two ways we might come to enjoy significant privilege in society. There is such a thing that, as privilege that comes from oppression. This is what we see when we think about Haman and the king. Remember, at the end of chapter 3, they've passed this law, and they're not worried about this law at all. They're not worried about who's going to die at all. They go have a beer. That's extreme privilege, to not have to worry about whether or not you're going to survive to see people under the threat of death 
and go have a beer. That's privilege that comes from oppression. But there is also such a thing as privilege that comes from grace, from God's grace. The blessings of grace can create for us a lot of advantages. Even marginalized and oppressed people can sometimes achieve high standing in the countries of their oppression and marginalization. I mean, after all, Esther is queen. But that kind of privilege that comes from God's grace will raise questions about who we really are and who we really value. Do we value our lives more than we value the lives of other people? Do we value our safety above even the safety of other people? Do we think of ourselves as individuals more than we think of our identity as God's covenant people? Do we want to hold on to our position more than we hold on to our people? See, if we use the privilege we receive from God's grace in the right way, then it will free us from the wrong identities. It will free us from radical individualism. It will free us from comfort-seeking and ease at the expense of others. It will free us from identities based on position or achievement. It will put us at the crossroads of selfishness and service. That's where Esther is right now. She's got to choose if I go left to selfishness or right to service. Those of us who have achieved any little thing by God's grace, have to ask ourselves if we are using that blessing solely for ourselves or if we are indeed using our blessing for the rest of our people too. Are we just getting ours? Or are we working for the collective liberation of people? Am I just getting mine or am I just, am I using prominence, position, and power to lift others from oppression? That becomes the question. We know what the Bible's answer is to this. We've heard it many times from Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17. We're to correct oppression. We're to seek justice. We're to care for widows and orphans. We've heard it in Proverbs 31, 8, 9. We're to speak up for the destitute. We're to basically advocate for those who are marginalized. We hear it from Jesus' mouth in Matthew 23, 23, when he says, uh, don't neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and love. We know the answer to the question, what we should be doing. The question is, are we? Well, I want to suggest to you, if you're sitting in this room today, lights on, comfortable seats, nice clothing, a car to drive home in a moment, a house to sleep in, a job to go to, some people to love. Those are blessings of grace. The question is, are we stewarding those things toward justice, toward righteousness, toward mercy? That's where Esther is, is at that crossroad. So if we're going to respond to injustice, we must use grace given to us by God to help, help others who have not had the same blessing. What's happening at our border ought to be a Christian concern. What's happening in abortion clinics ought to be a Christian concern. What's happening in our court system, the injustice of our justice system, ought to be a Christian concern. 
what's happening in our schools, what's happening in hospital, hospitals and medical care, wherever we find injustice, we, we got to grieve it, beloved. We got to care enough to feel it and weep and to ask ourselves, has God given me any grace to be leveraged toward righteousness in this situation? Which brings us to our final point. We must show grit in the face of danger. So Mordecai heard back from Esther in verses 10 and 11. Esther wasn't lying when she said if somebody goes to see the king without permission, they're going to be put to death. There's a death sentence there. She, she understood the risk. But Mordecai was totally unimpressed and unsympathetic. Mordecai had already made the connection between God's grace to Esther and God's plan to deliver Israel. So notice Mordecai's response to, to Esther. He, he says three things here, and I, I like to imagine that, that he actually called her Hadassah at this point. Just a way of reminder of who she is, right? So Mordecai says three things. Verse 13, basically he says, you will not escape. In other words, you may think you can continue to pass and, and thereby escape what's, what's coming, but everything comes to the light, Esther. When, when you are found out, then you will suffer the same outcome that the rest of the Jews suffered. You, you, you've not, you're not saved from the fate of the Jewish community because you're in the king's palace? Mm. Well, this is something that many people have come to learn. and Many African Americans, for example, in their right minds, have, have long understood. We can obtain degrees. And we can climb corporate ladders. We can even become the president of these disunited states. Doesn't matter how high you climb or how much you make, you're still going to share in the treatment that black folk get in this country. You can be LeBron James and buy a lovely house and move to L.A. to play for the Lakers and make a couple movies and still come home and find the N-word spray painted on your beautiful house. You can be an accomplished professor like Dr. Henry Louis Gates walking around his own house, trying to get in his own house and be arrested getting in your own house because you didn't look like you belong there. No, beloved, wherever there is persecution on a group, whatever that group is, each member of that group is vulnerable to that persecution. It's just how it works when it's group-based. Persecution comes for a group, whether it's ethnic, or gender, or religious, it comes for all the group. Esther needed to understand that. So Mordecai says, you, you're not going to escape. Number two, he says, God will save us, but not you and yours. That's what he says there. God will save us some other way, but, but you won't be saved. We, we may be used by God, beloved, but we are not necessary to God. God always has a ram in the bush. God always is able to make a way out of no way. So if we don't want to do our part, God ain't, he ain't plus, he ain't bothered. He's like, next man up. God ain't, ain't worried about us and, and our temper tantrums. That ain't no barrier to God delivering his people. Look at what Mordecai says. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And that's because, as we were singing a moment ago, God is himself a deliverer. That's who he is. It's what he does. So we don't want to fall into the trap of trying so hard to save our own necks that we actually wind up cutting ourselves off from the people that God delivers. 
people who are looking out for number one ought to remember what Jesus says when he says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You see, first place in man's eyes is last place in God's eyes. And last place in God's eyes is first place. Or Yeah, first place. Last place in man's eyes is first place in God's eyes. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all finish the sentence. Notice the third thing that Mordecai says. This might be God's very purpose for you. So he says at the end of verse 14, these well-known words, let me read them again for us. Mordecai says this, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He says in so many words, going to the king to save us might have been God's plan all along. If for such a time as this, it's for such a time as this, that you might have come to the kingdom. And you can't help but see the comparison between Joseph and Esther, can you? Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, works in Potiphar's home before Potiphar's wife lies on him, sent to prison, years in prison, forgotten by the servants whose dreams were being interpreted. Finally, the, that news comes to the Pharaoh and interprets the Pharaoh's dream and becomes number two in all of Egypt. Esther, a young girl, loses her parents early on, raised by her cousin, conquered by an enemy country, living as exiles in the capital, Susa, of that country, taken into a king's harem, seen by the king and loved, elevated to queen of that country. But Joseph understood that those things happened to him to save many people. Esther is only beginning to trust that that's God's purpose here. And the question becomes, do we have a sense of shared destiny with God's people? Do we have a sense of God's necessity, but not our own? Do we have a sense of God's purpose for us to use us for justice and for deliverance? If we're going to have grit in the face of injustice, we need these three senses, a, a shared destiny, God's necessity, and God's purpose. But notice Esther's reply. She replies in three ways, too. Verse 16, she says, basically, gather all the Jews and fast for me. So now Esther's playing catch up. They were already doing that. They're already doing that. She said, get everybody in Susa and, and let's have a, a, a prayer and fasting meeting. She says in the second part of verse 16, I and my servants will, will do the same thing. She like, I, I imagine her servants probably weren't Jewish, but she's like, oh, look, everybody in here going to have to fast. Everybody in here going to have to seek God. I don't know who you call it on, but you got to call somebody. And it reminds us that no significant service to God can be done without consecrating ourselves to God. That, that too often we run ahead of God, don't we? We don't prepare ourselves spiritually. We didn't seek the help of God's people. Then we discover that we were doing it all in the flesh, and we discover it doesn't last very long. But true service to God requires us setting ourselves apart for God, consecrating ourselves to God. True service to, to God, then, is a spiritual action of, of self-denial and crucifixion of the flesh. And it requires all of God's people to stand together in prayer and fasting. 
Only then are we ready to attempt great things with God. I mean, do you think it's possible, ARC, that we have not seen greater works of deliverance in our neighborhood, in our church, in our community, because we are not together consecrating ourselves to the Lord as and before we do the work? Are, are we not more fruitful because we are not more often fasting and praying? Notice the third part of Esther's response. She says, basically, I will go to the king and I'll perish if I need to. She sounds like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know when he prays three times, Lord, take this cup away from me? But he always resolves, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It's better to die for the people of God than to live without them. Jesus understood that. That's the logic of the cross. Better to redeem through death than to be the only one left alive. The Lord knew that. That's why he went to the cross. Uh, Esther is seeing that. That's why she is going to the king. If I perish, I perish. But there's a whole people here who needs to be saved from this injustice that's falling upon them. There's a whole people here who needs an advocate with the king in order that they might be delivered from death. Jesus now goes to the cross thinking the same thing. There's a whole people who need to be redeemed from the king of kings and lord of lords. There's a whole people who need to be redeemed from God's judgment against them because of sin. And that would be justice, not injustice. There's a whole people who need an advocate with the Father in order that rather than wrath, they might receive mercy. And Jesus is going to the cross saying, I'll take the wrath. I'll take the judgment that they might have mercy. It's the very logic that Esther is working on here. I'll go face the possibility of perishing so that my people might be saved. And what Esther faced as a possibility, Jesus faced as a fact. He knew he would be crushed on the cross. He knew he would suffer the wrath of God. He knew that judgment would fall completely and entirely on him. But he also knew as a result of being crucified, buried, and resurrected, a whole people who could not be numbered, Jew and non-Jew, male and female, old and young, every color, every language, every culture, that a whole people would be gathered to him and saved from the judgment. And Jesus is still doing that gathering. He's not still dying. He died once for all to atone for sins. And he has been raised from the grave. And he lives right now at the right hand of God the Father, appealing to the king of the universe for the salvation of his people. And right now, anyone who turns from their sin and puts their faith in Jesus shall be saved. There is a judgment coming. And it's terrible. But the way of escape has already been made. 
God had delivered Israel, as we'll see in the rest of these chapters uh, as we go through Esther. He's delivered Israel using uh, an earthly and a temporal means, but he has delivered his church. He's delivered people who turn to Jesus using a spiritual and effective means in the cross of Christ. This morning, if you're not yet a Christian, you can be. If you're not yet saved from God's wrath, you can be. If, if you've not yet sort of known the assurance of God's forgiveness and received the gift of eternal life, you can by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and following him in the obedience that comes from faith. We'd love to tell you more about that because there's a judgment you need to escape. And you have an advocate with the Father who's made the way of escape. Let us help you with that. And beloved, if you're already a Christian this morning, I want to conclude with this this simple exhortation. Let us have grit enough. Let us have grit enough to face the injustices of this world in the name of Christ, in the cause of righteousness. I don't believe the church of Jesus Christ has yet stood up for justice. I don't believe the church of Jesus Christ has yet cried and wept for injustice. I don't believe we've yet considered the grace that we have in this country. I don't yet believe that we have come to understand the riches that we have received through the Lord Jesus Christ. What staggering blessings we have received to be born in a country where we can worship God freely. What amazing grace we have received to live in a country where the church can amass uncountable wealth. What a tremendous thing it is to live in a country where many who name the name of Christ can ascend to the highest offices in this country. It is a tremendous act of grace that many of us not born here nevertheless live here and enjoy many of those same privileges. And we still need to hear the Lord ask us the question, so what you going to do with it? We still need to hear the Lord ask us the question, are you going to sit on it or are you going to share it? We still need the Lord to open our ears to learn about what's happening in the world in the way of persecution, in the way of injustice, in the way of all kinds of isms that are crushing people. We need to see it and we need to grieve it and we need grace to grieve it. We need grit to act, beloved. We're supposed to be a prophetic church, but too often we're a pathetic church. We're so concerned about our own position, so concerned about our own reputation, so concerned about our own advantage, so concerned about protecting what little bit we have by God's grace that it never occurs to us that the reason we have it is to bless others. I'm convinced the church hadn't woke up yet. In fact, much of the church is debating about whether it should be woke. The Bible says, wake up, you sleepers. The day of the Lord is fast upon us. We will have to give an account for what we have done in the body. And I'm led to believe, based on Matthew 25, that much of that accounting will be whether or not we have clothed the naked, fed the hungry, visited those in prison, whether or not we have done justice for those who have been crushed by injustice. 
if you are confused on that point, I want to invite you to repent and to study and to talk with us that that point might be settled in your soul forever because it's so clear in the Bible. If you reject that point, I love you. We love you. But this is probably not the church for you. If you want a church that's going to allow you to read Esther like this nice story of a pretty young girl who somehow miraculously did a nice thing one day, there are churches that will give you that cotton candy. But we're not one of them. We want the Word of God to work deeply in our hearts and to help us with the things that we lament and don't talk about at dinner parties. To help us with the things that break God's heart and ought to break our hearts. Now, if you want to be a part of a congregation that's trying to learn to be that, welcome home. Welcome home. And let me be clear. I'm not saying this because anybody has come at me in the congregation about any of this. But, beloved, sometimes we just need to make lines clear. That's what Mordecai is doing with Esther. He's making the lines clear. Because that clarity gives us confidence. And it helps us to take our stand on the right side of the lines. And for us, that means standing with Jesus for justice. It means standing with Jesus for the gospel. And understanding that those things are not in contradiction at all. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, teach us to grieve. We confess that we are too often unfeeling. Help us to know that coping with injustice isn't best done by avoidance and ignoring and turning off our hearts and minds. God, I confess that's so easy in my life. I can turn on the Xbox and escape, click on Netflix and watch my favorite show. I can drive certain roads and not others. There are a hundred, a thousand little things I can do to avoid seeing and feeling and grieving the things that are happening all around us. And Lord, I do confess that I could be one who justifies all kinds of injustice perpetrated by folks who look like me and deflect and to talk about injustice perpetrated against me when it's all injustice and it all needs a prophetic word. So help us, O oh Lord, to speak truth to power, to confront the systems that affect our lives, but help us also to, connect, to, to confront and to address neighbors and family members who themselves are engaged in things that destroy lives. Not to excuse either one but to have grit enough and grief enough to use your grace to stand up for what's right. 
And Lord, we've not arrived. We don't mean any of this in a self-righteous way. We don't even mean any of this in condemnation of other churches and other denominations and other groups who, who might think differently. We, we, we lament the fact that we think differently at points that are very important. But we do pray that you would awaken your church. Start with this one, or the one down the street or the one across the river. We do that, pray that you would awaken your church and we might become the people of God that you've called us to be zealous for righteousness and holiness, zealous for justice and mercy, zealous with your gospel, O oh Lord, working both in time and for eternity for the liberation and the blessing of your people. And help us to do this without anxiety, without worrying about what other people think, what other people say, without caring much about the comments of people who don't know our congregation, who don't worship here, who don't serve in our community. Help us instead to care more about what you think and to do what you have said. Then you will be glorified and then our joy will be complete. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.